Welcome to the Denver United Church Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Brendel. Good morning, everybody, and Happy New Year. Good morning to all of you who are worshiping with us house to house as well. It's so good to be with you and to be in the house of God. So excited for all the things that he's going to do in our lives this year. This is awakening. It's the time at the start of each year where we set ourselves apart for prayer and fasting and consecration, sort of a reboot and a purification, a recalibration, if you will, of our souls to the purpose for which God created us. And I love this time. It's a natural rhythm for many of us at the start of the year to make micro adjustments or overhauls to our life and reprioritize the things that matter most. We're going to talk about that in the context of the 23rd Psalm this month. And I think if ever there was a time that I needed to know God as my shepherd, it is now. Um, and, And before we jump into the word, I want to take just a moment and address the troubling events of last week and Um, the horrific unfolding of those on Wednesday, January 6th that that, uh, most of us witnessed, and just reflect on that uh, for a moment. I have um, sparingly, I think, but from time to time addressed our civic responsibility as Jesus followers, and never without uh, some pushback, and and that's okay. I I think if you're thin-skinned and can't have people dislike or disagree with you, you can't lead. You can do something else. And so I've sort of made my peace with that, though, of course, I want to speak in love, and I do want all of your good opinion. Um, Please recognize I'm a fellow human in in walking this journey of healing from brokenness and knowing God. And so um, my prayer much of the last 24 hours has been for these couple of minutes um, to, to represent as best I can Jesus' heart. Here's why I believe this is important for us. Some would say, and over the years I've been told um, many times, stay in your lane, bro. Um, but I, I can't do that because I disagree with, you, with that thinking as to what is my and our lane. We, as we talked about during election season, as followers of Jesus, not only don't check our citizenship at the door, but we ought to be the best, most informed, most articulate, most well-reasoned voices in the public square. And secondly, I believe God has much in his word to say about our civic engagement and uh, our national leadership and our role in that. We live in a country, the governance of which, as Thomas Jefferson Riley put it at the formation of our country, is the least bad form of human governance that the world has yet seen. And that said, we have seen a lot of good and some challenge from the notion of government of the people, by the people, and for the people. But entrenched in that notion, deep in that tradition, and in our understanding of the rule of law is that not only do we submit to the governing authorities as scripture teaches, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but that the governing authorities submit to us. We are, we are make no mistake about it, not living in an autocracy. We live in a, in a freely elected government system whereby the president and other elected officials work for you and me. And so often I'm also um, told, Scripture says, submit to governing authorities. And when you challenge the president and his leadership, you're disobeying Scripture. No, I think um, the question maybe is, what does it mean to submit? And I don't think that God's teaching, certainly Jesus' example bears this out, is to um, accept unquestioningly. 
right? Because in our system, the president is also instructed by God's word to submit to governing authorities. And we should expect him or her to do the same thing which we ask of ourselves, right? Uh, Lots of you employ people, your business owners or your supervisors, uh, shift supervisor at Starbucks or somewhere in between, and you'd make judgments about your employees or about those you supervise. If they show up late for work, you judge them. You tell them you cannot do this or you can't keep working at Starbucks, right? That's not being judgy or judgmental. That's making what scripture describes as a right judgment. It is, in other words, your place to make that judgment. Now, God's way would be to do that in love, to do that in a way that builds up rather than tears down, but it is the responsibility of those in authority to make judgments. Make no mistake about it. And so it is our responsibility, I believe, to make right judgments about those who work for us. And right now, I think the circumstances require thoughtful judgment in the fracas of, of social discourse. And so my hope is, if I can't make you like me more, to be a good pastor to you and not to address what's gone down this week and where we are as a country and as the body of Christ in it would be to not be a very good pastor to you. And so much as I want your good opinion, I care more that we understand as best I'm able to communicate it, God's perspective, and at least how I understand God's perspective, and that we uh, represent Jesus well in such a pivotal time in our nation. The events which transpired and, and culminated in the riot at our Capitol are unprecedented in my, I think, all of our lifetimes and warrant some redress. What are we as Christians to make out of this? Well, um, I I, uh, I, I spent a long time reading and trying to get my mind around what exactly happened. And for those whose pushback would be, you're being conditioned by the mainstream media, I actually read every word of the transcript of that long, to me, my mind might not have been on the same plane, but long, incoherent and rambling speech that um, many attribute the, the riot to. Right? I read every word of it. I didn't listen to one network or another tell me what they thought about it. And in my judgment, the leadership that that bespoke uh, is unacceptably poor for us as the people of God. Here's why. Uh, there are several reasons, but here's why I, I, that I want to share this morning. Um, This is where it gets, everyone agrees with me up to this point. This is where some of you will stop agreeing with me and I'll try to speak in love and then I would be happy to talk about it with you later. Um, The rally cry uh, culminating in that um, gathering on the Capitol was to people who resonated with a mandate to make our nation great again. I don't begrudge anybody wanting to make our nation great or thinking that our nation was greater at a, at a previous time in history than now. The context in which that message has been reiterated and culminated last Wednesday, that the, 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 the sense of greatness was in not distinguishing from one and another understanding of it, but with um, such enduring symbols of division and hatred and dehumanization as the Confederate flag 
featured prominently. Gallows as props. um, Marching cries to lynch government officials uh, with whom the crowd did not disagree. A a notion of making America great that does not uh, distinguish and separate from those ideals is, um, is inviable, in my judgment, from a, a, a worldview informed by Jesus Christ. It just doesn't, it does not square. It cannot. To use language that repeatedly and, and frenetically challenges people to be strong and to fight and now walk to the Capitol who are carrying AR-15s and homemade Molotov cocktails and not to distinguish that that's not what we mean by this bears responsibility. And we as citizens and bosses of our president must speak Jesus' truth in censure. We must say, that's not okay. That is not a wrong judgment to make. That is a right judgment to make. That is your judgment to make. And so, many would say and have said to me, look, I I disagree with the president's rhetoric. I don't like his personality, but I like his policies. And that's fine. I believe that we are all free to choose what policy we like, so long as the policy is lawful. I am a lifelong political conservative. I don't talk often about my own political persuasion because that's needlessly divisive in most contexts. I want you to know, though, that I say this at personal cost. I'm not parroting my party's line, okay? And I, too, find great, um, find much value in the policies that have been enacted. But I think it's a cop-out. I don't think Jesus leaves us the right to say, I agree with the policy, but I don't like the personality. That does not work when the personality is fomenting injustice or is, is um, giving a thumbs up to um, the, the notion that America should be great for certain people but decidedly less great for others. Because the idea of making America great as greatness seems to the people who had their desks on, their feet rather, on congressmen's desks, that's a very different version than what many in our church family, many of our brothers and sisters sitting uncomfortably close to you right now would consider great. And when the imagery that's used to illustrate that cry for a return to greatness includes symbols of great pain and great injustice and oppression and denigration and dehumanization of those people, we as Jesus followers do not, listen, in my judgment, do not have the luxury of saying, I like the policy, I just don't care for the personality. That personality is character expressed and that character is condoning passively and at times, in my judgment, actively fomenting 
an injustice that should be egregious to us as Jesus followers. Much as I like a strong economy and have my beliefs, and unapologetically, many of you I know believe differently, and that's perfectly fine with me. And I think that's part of what unity means, that we can agree to disagree with regard to our understanding of what economic and social policies are best for our country. I like less regulation. I like a pro-business climate, and I dislike debt. I grieve for what my grandchildren are going to inherit. At the same time, Jesus seemed vastly more concerned with the plight of those who have lived under injustice, the helpless, the weak, the marginalized, than he did about a strong economy. So if Jesus is first, our desire for economic strength and blind eye turning to the plight of those for whom Jesus spoke most clearly and boldly, it does not square. And that must not be okay with us. Am I telling you I think you should take a political side? I think you should speak up for Jesus and dispense with the nonsense that as Christians we're supposed to submit in a way that is to say we cannot speak in censure of the, the ones who work for us. As soon as we stop doing that, as soon as we forfeit that responsibility, we've resigned ourselves to autocracy. Now, Jesus' people have thrived in all different political systems and his kingdom has never been thwarted yet. But this is the political system in which he placed us as 21st century residents of America. This is the challenge that is before us and representing the values of Jesus in the public square, in the voice of our nation. This is who we are and what we're called to do. And the last thing I want to mention is the troubling, increasingly troubling notion that, of uh, experience, perhaps I'll, I'll own it, that I've had of evangelical Christianity um, converging with a certain political ideology. It's happened and happens with various political ideologies, but there is one that is dominant in the voice of our culture. And not only are we putting Jesus second and doing that which he made clear in his word we must not do, having another God before him, but we're misrepresenting him and he seems to be intolerant when his people do that. I've heard sermons and read forwarded posts and listened to prophecies and, and heard religious movements talk about how one person is God's anointed, and even though he's rough, Nebuchadnezzar was God's war club, but he's God's anointed vessel to raise up and tear down, and another person is the Antichrist, I would be extremely cautious. I, would, I, I uh, plead with you to be extremely cautious ascribing biblical roles or offices to political figures. Every four years or so, somebody or other is the Antichrist in, in some forwarded emails um, understanding. They're always wrong. Now, maybe 
Biden is the Antichrist. Maybe Trump is God's anointed. And if I'm wrong, I will apologize to you and I'll take the hit before Jesus in heaven. But I think here's what typically happens. When we put another person in the place in our hearts of God's anointed, we dethrone the one who actually deserves that title. And you can only serve one master. Jesus Christ is the only anointed of God whom we need. He died on a cross so you and I could be forgiven and free to represent him in our world and build his kingdom. That is the kingdom that God has come to restore. That is what God wants to make great again. Can he use our nation? Sure, he's used animals and innate objects, but our nation is not the kingdom of heaven and no political leader deserves that unwavering allegiance. Only Jesus. And so, if that's where you find yourself, I, I caution you to reevaluate. If you know others who find themselves there, refrain from Facebook chat banter. That persuades no one. Speak the truth, however, and speak it in love. And the last reason is for our witness, right? I have, over the course of my 20-year pastoral career, spent the second half atoning for some of my own um, religious nationalistic sins. But I've spent a lot of time talking to the 20-something adult children of you, my 50-something empty nest friends and elders, who grew up under, uh, uh, as a kid does, the, the tacit understanding presented to them that political conservatism and Christianity are synonymous. It's the same thing, except as they became adults, found themselves, found yourself, talking to many of you, disillusioned with the one and threatened to throw the other out like the baby with the bathwater. Listen, your children my empty nest friends, need no help. Their generation needs no help. Rejecting Jesus wholesale. Walking away from the church. They're doing it at historically unprecedented rates. We must be able to distinguish Jesus from our political persuasion. And if we can't, simply put, we're wrong. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to us. He didn't say seek only. He didn't say that your understanding of economic policy or your preference for deregulation of businesses or how we interact with China don't matter. He said seek first the kingdom of God. Give to Jesus what is Jesus's and then give to Caesar what is his. And if we aren't clearly distinguishing first place from second and beyond in our hearts, then we aren't serving Jesus. And this is a time, friends, when we as his church must stand up, speak clearly, full of compassion and love, and serve Jesus. Our nation needs it. Our leadership needs it. And that's why God put you here for such a time as this. Amen? All right. Normally, this is where I'd make a pithy joke about throwing tomatoes at George or something like that. But honestly, if you want to talk about it, I'm happy to talk about it. Um, if, if you need to, to leave the church because you can't abide that, that would make me sad, but I'm okay with that. You'll find no shortage of evangelical churches that conflagrate the two and teach one as the other. I simply will not do it here. All right. All right, enough of that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you have put us here as salt and light. Thank you, Jesus, that you are making 
all things new, that the impulse of this idea to make this broken world great again is your idea. Give us grace to see clearly how you look at our world, to recognize the dignity of each person, to advocate for the underserved and the marginalized in our own church family and in our nation to represent your heart. And Lord, teach us how to live. We desperately need you. And now, Lord, would you teach us from your word as we start this year with the determination of seeking you and finding you as we seek you with all of our hearts. We give your word our attention now, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to start into this topic this morning. I'll try to be concise with it. I appreciate your giving me a few extra minutes if you need to go. We don't have kids ministry happening, so uh, we're not keeping the teachers long. But if you need to go uh, in a, at the end of a service that will be a little longer than it customarily is, you won't hurt my feelings. I'll understand. I'll just assume that um, you're mortally offended and in lieu of throwing tomatoes, you stood up and walked out. All right. You know, um, this time of year resonates with me. I don't know if it does with you, but I've always been a, a dreams and ambitions kind of guy, like a grab life by the tail sword. And New Year, New Year is my time. New Year is the time when you, you dispense with the old, you look forward, you make new plans, you make resolutions, you talk about how you're going to improve yourself, and you re-grab life by the tail. I'm the guy, I think, uh, young me, uh, probably Yoda would have said of me with Luke, this one a long time have I watched. All his life, he looked away to the future, to the horizon. That's me, the hero's journey has always captivated me, you know, against all odds, enduring hardship and striving to make something great happen. The epitome of the hero in his plight is the uh, is Homer's Odyssey and Odysseus, the Greek version is Ulysses, and nobody captures his story more beautifully in words than the poet Alfred Tennyson. Listen to what he wrote. Actually, I'm going to read it out of my little Tennyson book. Listen to what he wrote about Ulysses. I'm just going to read you a little excerpt from this. You're like, man, you're killing me. Poetry, you're going to love it. These are beautiful words. Listen, I cannot rest from travel. I will drink life to the lees. All times I have enjoyed greatly, have suffered greatly, both with those that loved me and alone, on shore, and when through scuttling drifts, the rainy Hyades, that was, remember, his ship, the Hyades, the rainy Hyades vex the dim sea. I am become a name for always roaming with a hungry heart. Much have I seen and known. I remember reading this and thinking, that's my guy. Odysseus is bad. Much has he seen and known. Always roaming with a hungry heart. Listen to how it concludes. I want to read the whole thing to you, but um, you may actually stand up and walk out. Okay, here's how this epic poem concludes. Come, my friends, tis not too late to seek a newer world. Push off and sitting well in order, smite the sounding furrows. For my purpose holds to sail beyond the sunset and the baths of all the western stars until I die. Though much is taken, he famously concludes, much abides, and though we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are. You know the line. One equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. That's my guy, Ulysses, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield as one with that heroic temper of steeled hearts. 
And so this morning we borrow our title from Alfred Tennyson, to strive, to seek, to find. This is why I think I like David so much. I fancy myself like him. You know, you kind of read yourself you onto your literary heroes or Bible figures. You sort of anthropomorphize the text. Well, I do that with David like no one else. I think David, and I think the context clues bear it out, was, was a striver, was a seeker. Me and Luke and him would have been sitting there and Yoda would have been saying to all of us, ha, always to the future, always to the horizon he looks. David was always looking out, right? And that's why it's so significant that David wrote Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. We're going to look at this passage, this familiar passage, like an old friend, verse by verse over the next several weeks, and understand some of God's heart for our awakening to his presence and to relationship with him. He begins, the Lord is my shepherd, and that word which he uses would have been familiar in the household vernacular, not only of David's contemporaries in Hebrew society, but in Jesus' day as well. The word is ra'ah, and the root is a verb, which means to pasture, not pastor, like I was attempting to do with you, but pasture as in to put out to pasture, right? To tend, graze, or feed. But the sense in the abundant, numerous usages in the Old Testament of this word ra'ah is to take care of with a tone of tenderness and companionship, not to dispense the goods from on high, you know, rain down resupply with a parachute, but hands-on, down in the trenches, ra'ah, shepherding. Jesus reflects on this very same idea in John chapter 10, revealing God to us as he does. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. The hired hand, verse 13, runs away because he's working only for money and doesn't really care about the sheep. But I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and they know me. The way this thing seems like it wants to go is he's like contrasting himself to the hired hand. The hired hand, you know, runs away when danger comes, but I stay. The good shepherd, you know, doesn't leave you hungry. He provides. The good shepherd doesn't get too busy if Someone important calls. He's there for his sheep. He doesn't run away in the face of danger. He stays and fights off the bad guy. You'd think Jesus would wind it up by saying, I know my sheep and my sheep feel protected. But he kind of takes the thing on a little bit of a curveball and this develops out this nuance, this significant nuance of ra'ah to be a shepherd. And he says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. So you see, as Jesus is revealing God the Father to us, the brand promise which he introduces or reintroduces and says, hey, even in the face of sin and brokenness and you're not being able to keep the law, the deal is still on. Because I'm going to die on a cross so that you can be forgiven, made right to God. This is the glory of the gospel. Not that our sins are forgiven. That's not the glory. That's the means to an end. That's the mechanics of the gospel. The glory of the gospel is because we are forgiven and set free from bondage to sin, we're restored to our true identity, to the purpose for which we were created. You were made not to, squal to live in squalor and uh, eke out an existence, but to know God. You're his sheep. He is your shepherd. You're made to seek him and to find him. 
And Jesus, the glory of the gospel, he died on a cross so that we could be restored to our understanding of that identity which had been lost and to our access so that we can again know God, our good shepherd, and know that he knows us and cares about us. When I was in the army to start my professional life, during the course of my four years in combat service, I had two different battalion commanders, one whom, frankly, I do not remember his name, and the other who became a friend after I got out of the service. The, both were perfectly competent. They issued effective battle plans, and they made provision for their troops. They got us the supplies we need to repair our tanks, and generally it was clear that they did their job well. The first, I don't even remember. The second, I sought out as a friend. His name was Lieutenant Colonel Ralph Zimmerman, and he was different. Controversial in the wake of the old army. He came down to the motor pool with the soldiers and would turn a wrench and show them how to change the track. He would get his uniform dirty and ask us questions and allow us, when we were in private with other officers, to call him by his first name. The reason I love that man, that commander and his troops would have followed him into the face of death was because he knew us and he wanted us to know him. That's how your good shepherd is. Jesus reveals a God who protects and provides and stays, but also a God who is available and accessible, who invites this illuminates a shepherd who knows and is known by his sheep. So in Christ, we can know God. And there is no grander undertaking that. There's no more glorious endeavor. Knowing God is the consummation of all human pursuit. It touches our core files when you start to experience it. It resonates with your, your resonance frequency. Because he who made you, made you that way. He made you like Tennyson and Ulysses before him to seek, to strive, to find, and not to yield, to look out to the horizon, to make New Year's resolutions, to believe for more, not to get beaten by 2020, COVID, recession, or anything else. He made you ambitious. He made you to strive. He made you to lean forward in the saddle and grip the reins tight. But he knew the fulfillment of that, the pursuit which is wired into your soul and takes its visage in a thousand lesser pursuits was the pursuit of knowing him. It is the consummation of all our pursuits. And it's why I think as humans, we struggle so hard to fill our love bucket apart from him. How many people's stories are variations on the theme of climbing their ladder their whole lives, like Covey talked about, only to get to the top and find out it's leaning on the wrong wall. It didn't fulfill me after all. I gave the best years of my life, my strength and my wealth. I lost the things I valued most, trying to find that ultimate horizon. But like Ulysses, it was farther out when I got there. We were made for this pursuit. We were made to know our good shepherd. J.I. Packer in his great book, Knowing God, observed this, what makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this, 
This the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? Seeking to know God is the sum of all our resolutions. He's what we've always been looking for and didn't know to call it. I love the poets, the musicians, the artists, the stage actors, because they give voice to the cry and the impulse of our culture. And throughout the second half of the 20th century, we rallied around and deeply loved those who gave our plight such voice. Remember when they sprung onto the scene halfway through the 20th century, the Beatles issued a cry that resonated with Western society when the broken-hearted people living in the world agree, there will be an answer. You're not going to be broken-hearted forever. You're not going to go unfulfilled in your pursuit. There will be an answer. Don't know what it is, but let it be. They're all basically singing, let it be, let it be. We're singing amen. We believe that, Paul. And then like 60s, Jimmy Cliff and the social enlightenment, he had many rivers to cross, right, and couldn't seem to find his way over. And then 70s, Mick Jagger couldn't get no satisfaction. And 80s, Bono still hadn't found what he was looking for. And then to the 90s, the end of a century, the candle starts to grow dim. The seeking, the finding, and the not finding after all. And the voice of that decade, Kurt Cobain said, when the lights are out, it's less dangerous. Just dim the lights. Dim my consciousness. Do what I can to numb that God-imbued pursuit. Maybe if I could make myself a little less forward in the saddle, I'd be okay. Here we are now. Just entertain us. Just go ahead and try to fill that round hole with a square peg. Packer observed once you become aware that the main business that you're here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. So there are two ideas in this one seminal verse in the 23rd Psalm, and they form one foundational truth. The Lord is my shepherd, David writes, I shall not want. And the verb to want is kasser, which means literally to lack. And it's used variously across the Old Testament in ways that are translated to be without or to diminish or to decrease. He's saying, I will not go down. I will not lack. And I think understanding this word, it's a little more subtle in English, where David says, as we've all memorized and heard at funerals our whole lives, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I think what he's saying maybe is captured in that really poignant scene in Les Mis when Jean Valjean is by um, Eponine's bed, uh, deathbed, remember? And she's worried about her kid, Cosette. She'd had a rough life, figured Cosette was going to have a rough life. But Jean Valjean, he intercepts her, and she's like... Um, my Cosette, and he's like, we'll live in my protection. And then she's, she goes on 
you know what I'm talking about? Don't look at me like you didn't watch and like get goosebumps when Hugh Jackman's all like, um, your child will want for nothing. That's what I think God's saying. The Lord is my shepherd. You will want for nothing. See, Eponine had a rough life. Cosette was in the balance until Jean Valjean came and she could die in peace because he looked at her and he said, look me in the eyes and he grabbed her hands and he said, your child can't do this for every child in the world, but your child, Eponine, she will want for nothing. And that's what your heavenly father says to you. Knowing God is your shepherd, you need never feel want. You need never cosser if you follow. Even when you lack and need and diminish and decrease, and that will happen because Jesus made clear in this world, you will have trouble. It's not all bread and roses after you meet Jesus. Don't buy it if the religion they're selling you is that it's a panacea to all the ills and woes of life in a fallen planet or in a broken human body. You will have trouble. But it means that even when you do lack, diminish, decrease, you will not be lacking. The truest and fullest version of what it means to be alive is yours. And that's something that no earthly lack can touch. This is written in the first person. And from the Hebrew, the first words we have are a psalm of David. I think it's important, and God wanted us to know that this wasn't just words delivered from on high by an angel. This was a guy named David whose story we get to read in, in uncomfortable detail, saying in the first person, the Lord is my shepherd. Listen, I shall not want. And I think there's an important distinction here between I will not and I shall not. They're very subtle and in modern English the distinction has been lost, but I will not is a, is more a matter of course. It's like um George brought me a cheeseburger, so I will not be hungry afterward. Because it's cause and effect right? But shall not, see, this is an act of volition. This is the highest human faculty on display. I choose because I know the Lord and because he is a shepherd, I make this decision. I shall not want. It's a stance of faith and conviction. It's a declaration of choice to respond to the person of our good shepherd. I make this choice, and who he is makes it certain. When we read this, often what we draw from it and what we teach are the practical, teachable, applicable values of, of contentment and simplicity. And I don't mean to suggest that these aren't virtues. And they are a part of, I think, what God's getting at in this passage. But they're more of a fruit, more of a, a derivative of knowing God. It's as if to say, because I know him as a shepherd, I can be content. I can live simply after all. So let me ask you, what's keeping you from knowing God in this way? How did the extraordinary year 2020 incline you toward casser, toward want? How 
Did perhaps it push your soul down, grind you down, or wear you out till you slid without even knowing you made the choice back into a place of lack, of thinking that the diminishment, the decrease, the very real pain of loss, of life, companionship, employment, economic strength, and so much freedom. (laughs) The ability to have a conversation with the other person can actually hear you. These losses, they're real. How perhaps did, in the midst of the swirl, those losses slide back into the place where they defined, they wrote the end of the story? I'd like to invite us to begin the year by leaning in, leaning into knowing God, to knowing God and therefore re-choosing, I shall not want. I think the truth is that most of us, me foremost among us, know a good bit more about God than we actually know God. Would you disagree? And modern American Christianity has made it all too easy to confuse the two. It's difficult disambiguating what I know about God, an intellectual understanding of theology, a knowledge of the scriptures even, a well-formed moral code, the evidences, the fruits of knowing God from actually knowing him himself. Packer concludes, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. And this, friends, is what awakening is all about. It's about slowing down, silencing all of the demands around us, and coming to know God, taking what we know about Him and allowing His Spirit to form that into knowledge of Him. It happens in the secret place. It happens in meditation, quiet, in prayer, worship, and reflection. It's a spiritual transformation. I can't give you three practical steps to turn your knowledge about God into knowledge of God, or all you'll get is one more line item of knowledge about God. Helpful, but not the thing, not the transforming truth of his presence in our lives. We've got to go there. Like Aragorn in the cave with the dead dudes, you've got to go there alone. That's what awakening is for. Because to go there takes silencing all of the competing influences. It takes quieting the competition, doesn't it? We have to subdue our false and conditioned self that would, left to itself, go back to wanting, go back to Cossair life. And that's what prayer and fasting does. It's a, it's a tandem spiritual discipline that is a means to an end. It quiets the competition for our souls so we can get to know God better. 
Prayer and fasting is not an end unto itself. It doesn't impress God, and it's not to earn promotion among our fellow Christians. Jesus said, when you pray, when you fast, go in your room, close the door, do it in secret. It's not for one another. Because left to myself, I want to, I want to, to do religious stuff so that Eddie will think I'm a better Christian. And he wants to do it, so I'll think he's a better Christian. And we go back and forth on that. It's in my religious DNA, and it's in yours probably, brother, too, right? But see, Jesus said, these things aren't the end. If you make them the end, they're just one more lifeless pursuit. These things are a means to an end. So we're not trying to say, hey, let's get our spiritual fasting merit badge. What we're doing is saying, let's quiet the competition. And there's a lot of it, and it's loud because we live in the 21st century where phones are buzzing and signs are advertising and people are needing us all day long. I think of the competition like the big three, ambition, distraction, and compulsion. Maybe there are others for you. That's what it is for me and I think for a lot of us as I've walked through life with you. Ambition, compassion, compassion, ambition, compulsion, and distraction. the illicit, frenetic need that pulses in me to be more, to see more, to do more, even yet to plumb the horizon like Ulysses, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. See, these things pull at me all day long. If only I look at one more thing one more video after this video, after that video will make me laugh. And Distraction to the nth degree. Compulsion. I need this. If I had that, it would make my life complete, my soul fulfilled. But to know the Lord as our shepherd requires making the choice not to want. And prayer and fasting is a means to that end. You know, I love Jesus so much because he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And I think that the enemy confuses and reinterprets that in our minds and makes us hear it as this. Seek only the kingdom of God and you'll reach a level of nirvana, a level of Christian enlightenment so that the other things will just go away won't care about them anymore. But that's not how he wired you either. That's spiritually dishonest. But Jesus didn't say that. He said, seek first me, my kingdom. Know me. Install my operating system. And all these things that matter to you, they matter to me. I left you on earth to exert influence in those lanes, to build businesses to influence cultures. To raise families that stand like a lighthouse in the fog in the midst of this generation. So the word of God says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I think the last deception of the enemy here may be that we think, ah, oh, that's just all so complex. It's, if you could give me, if you could make it simple for me, tell me how to do it, I'll go do it. But 
I don't want to have to seek. I don't even know where to begin. I wouldn't know where to look. Well, here's the thing about God. He's a good father. He's not going to hide himself so you can't find him. He puts the cookies on the bottom shelf. Like any of you parents or grandparents, you play hide and seek with your little kids or your grandkids. Imagine this. You're like, honey, I found this incredible hiding spot. It's like that alcove that has this recessed doorway behind the hot water heater. The grandkids will never find us there. And so they're counting one, two, and you're like wedging yourselves in behind the hot water heater and then you're pulling that that piece of drywall in front of it and some insulation and the kids are like, we can't find you, Mimo. And you're like, we got him. We really got him this time, honey. And then eventually they get bored and they go away and start playing Xbox until they get hungry and they're like, Mimo, we're hungry. Mimo, where are you? Ah! And you're like, ha, 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 we really got him. We fooled him. Who would do that? When I remember playing hide and seek with my kids when they were like six and I would hide behind the bed with like my legs sticking out. Because the point is I wanted them to find me. I just wanted them to look a little bit and that's how your father is. He's a good father. He says, seek me and you will find me. He wants you to find him. He's got his legs sticking out from behind the dresser. It's not that hard. You just have to seek him. And that's why we pray and fast every time this year. And man, I invite you to join us. Not to be more religious, not because you need a diet, you look great, but because fasting and prayer has a way of silencing the competition, tuning my spirit into the spirit of God and aiding me in finding him. And so that's what we're going to do to start the year, and I hope you'll join us in it. Let's pray together. Would you stand with me, and then we'll respond in worship. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for your promise that we would seek you, and when we did, that we would find you, that you are a good shepherd, and that you don't just provide for us. You know us, and you invite us to know you, and you said that's what the good life looks like. That's where it begins. Give us grace to do that this year. In the midst of all that's swirling around us, we want to know you so that we can live fulfilled and so that we can represent you in this lost and dying world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, love you all. We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com. 